You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A news conference with Acting Governor Sylvia Luke and county mayors and emergency management officials has just wrapped up. Winds from Hurricane Dora whipped up fires on several islands. It is Maui, including historic Lahaina, that appears hardest hit so far with homes and businesses burned overnight. Many schools are closed. Power outages are reported across the state as there are many downlines. Evacuations began last night and emergency shelters have been open. The fire has claimed six lives so far. We have updates from Maui County Mayor Rick Bisson, followed by Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth and Ed Sniffen, State Transportation Director, from that press conference. We know there's lots of interest in what's going on uh, in our county, and I'd like to update everyone. Um, As a result of three fires that have occurred that are continuing uh, here on our island, uh, we have had um, 13 evacuations from different uh, neighborhoods and, and uh, towns. We've had 16 road closures. We've opened five shelters. Uh, and we've, uh, as a result of that, um, our west side of our island, uh, Lahaina area was, uh, was cut off. Uh, only one road was able to be um, traveled in and out. Uh, power was out uh, to 2,628 uh, vehicles customers. Uh, there was no power at our hotels uh, or even at the shelters that we opened out on that side. Uh, I'm sad to report that just before coming on this, uh, it was confirmed we've had six fatalities that we were able to confirm. Um, and we are still in a search and rescue uh, mode. And so uh, I don't know what will happen to that number. Uh, we've had many dwellings, businesses, structures uh, that have uh, have been burnt, uh, many of them to the ground, uh, mostly in our Lina uh, neighborhoods and our Lina area. Uh, we've had uh, also, I should have added multiple school closures. So we are grateful to the DOE for allowing us to use their facilities here in Maui County to uh, be able to house folks. We have over 2,100 people in shelters uh, within those shelters I mentioned to you and uh, several that are uh, unaccounted for in the sense that they are in their cars and did not come into the actual shelter. Um, We are grateful again for the assets that have been uh, sent over to us by the state, our federal partners, our county partners and allies. We are grateful for the outpouring of assistance. Uh, At this time, uh, we are battling, continuing the battle of fire. We now have helicopters they were unable to get up in the air yesterday uh, that are now uh, using water drops to, uh, to help suppress the fire. Uh, that's the latest information from Maui County. I uh, thank you again uh, for allowing us to address you. Mahalo, Mayor Bisson. At this time, I'd like to turn your attention virtually to Mayor Mitch Roth from Hawaii County. Hawaii Island, we had um, three to five fires, depending on how you count them. Um, right now, we are still battling um, three of those. Uh, Lalamilo fire is pretty much well contained. Um, we have Kunipule fire. Um, we have some containment on there. However, um, we do still have firefighters out there. We still um, kind of hesitant to say we have it completely under control. Um, the Kunipule highway is still closed from mile markers 6 to 17. As far as the Mauna Kea Resort area fire, that is still being actively uh, fought right now. I have just got word before going on that they have just opened the Queen Kahalamano Highway that was closed. So um, we're still going uh, in in that area. Um, Still caution people, we're still under a red flag warning. And we see that with winds coming up, it's very possible for uh, flames to get sent out uh, from places where we, we think we almost have things put out. But right now, uh, firefighters are out there working. Um, we have our shelters open, Kiso Oka Gym, as well as Waimea Community Center. I believe at this time, those uh, shelters are, are empty. Um, we appreciate all the support that people have given to us. We especially pre- appreciate um, the teamwork that we've received from you know, our firefighters, uh, federal partners, our, our military, PTA, uh, National Guard, 
Um, a lot of our private contractors who have been out there, uh, State uh, DLNR from the DOFA and others who have just reached out to help us. We're so thankful for that. But at this time, you know, our, our thoughts and our prayers are uh, with Maui and, you know, uh, we're not out of the woods yet, but I think uh, the situation in Maui right now should take precedence over us. And uh, we're happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Mahalo, Mayor Roth. At this time, I'd like to bring up Director Ed Sniffen with the Hawaii State Department of Transportation. Hello, everybody. Um, absolutely horrific situation that we're trying to work through right now. And re really, hearts and, hearts and prayers go out to, to, to Maui, Maui County. Um, we are strongly discouraging non-essential travel to Maui, but the airports are still operating efficiently. Uh, right now, last night, we had 2,000 people staying over at the airport who got stuck either on the, um, because they couldn't get on the red eye or they were waiting for other flights to come in. Uh, we made sure that we processed them through this morning. Uh, we're working with our airline um, partners on, on all of that. There's another 4,000 visitors that we're expecting who want to leave the island uh, from the west side. So Kahikili Highway is open on the, the back road to make sure that they can, you can come from Lahaina or the west side into town to get to Kahului. Um, and the uh, Honopilani Highway and the bypass are closed at, or for, for operational or emergency responders only at this time. There's just a lot of poles down in different areas, fires jumping in different different spots, and it's dangerous to, to utilize that roadway. Um, but Kahili is open. Um, we expect everybody to use that to get into, into town, into the airport area. Our airport partners are absolutely amazing. Um, they've, uh, you'll see that they've dropped fares and offered waivers to a lot of travelers to help everybody get off of Maui. To make sure that we can uh, we can move people over to Oahu or or get them back home, whichever they'd like, um, to ensure that we can start using the resources to recover um, and, and focus on the residents of Maui in that area. Um, we'll we'll keep updating on our web pages um, the accessibility of all of our highways and if any impacts occur at the airports. I would recommend to everybody um, anytime we have travel like this that's that's um, impacted on one island, it's going to impact others. So before you head down to the airport, if you're going to travel anywhere, before you get, head down to the airport, make sure you check in with your airlines, check in on the, on the status of your flight to ensure that it's on time. Thank you very much. That was a clip from Lieutenant Governor Luke's press conference on the Maui and Big Island fires this morning. Uh, you heard from Maui County Mayor Rick Bisson, followed by Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth and Ed Sniffen, a State Transportation Director. Earlier this morning, we talked to the National Guard uh, spokesman Jeff Hickman about efforts to assist the counties as we try to get those fires under control and get people out of harm's way. Here's Hickman. I wanted to give an update on what the National Guard is doing here in Hawaii. We were requested by both Maui and Hawaii counties to provide support uh, in regards to the wildfires. So on Maui, we have 36 guardsmen assisting Maui Police Department with traffic control and roving security patrols. We also have 12 personnel that will assist with search and rescue. 12 of our 36 actually started last night at 11 p.m. And that was kind of an emergency decision based on the rapidly deteriorating situation on Maui. The mayor asked and uh, Adjutant General, Major General Hara agreed. So we activated 12 people last night. So they were on the ground since 11 p.m. last night assisting the Maui Police Department who have been working for hours and hours. So I have two Chinook. CH-47 helicopters to assist the Maui Fire Department and first responders with fire suppression. Those helicopters are able to carry water buckets that carry 2,000 gallons of water and can do four to five drops in an hour. On the big island of Hawaii, we have 30 guardsmen assisting the Hawaii Police Department with traffic control and security. And they started this morning. For our fire suppression, the active duty 25th Infantry Division is assisting Hawaii County Civil Defense. Um, with their fire suppression. And Jeff, can you tell us, have you folks been able to do a flyover with emergency personnel just to, you know, get a bird's eye view of the damage, you know, on Maui? We, we have not been uh, requested for that yet. We do have helicopters on Maui flying right now. I think the priority is to, to get them on, on scene with, with water buckets. Uh, but if they do make their request, that's something we could do for both islands, yes. As far as uh, anything else that the public can do to assist the Guard in, in its efforts? Uh, right now is the, the number one goal for Maui and Hawaii County and the Hawaii National Guard is to save lives. And so I would stay away from the areas, um, let the first responders have all the access, and, uh, and just 
uh, stay uh, stay out of the areas and get and heed all warnings. If any announcements come up about evacuations, take it seriously, because we we just learned just from last night and uh, this morning when we could actually see the devastation that's on Maui and the Big Island, and things change really quick. So be safe. Listen to the updates. And, uh, and just uh, stay as far away from the fire as you can. And what can you tell us about Lahaina at all? Are you getting reports back? Hawaii Emergency Management Agency got some reports about, I think it was 14 water rescues off of Lahaina, uh, people escaping flames, Coast Guard assisted with that. And uh, the Department of Land and Natural Resources personnel, DOCARE, also rescued two personnel off uh, Lahaina. Uh, I don't have any reports of number of buildings Uh, The exact acreage, none of that is coming in because they're so busy with the 24-hour operations. There's not a lot of stats coming in. So uh, we're really right now just trying to support Maui County emergency managers and the community uh, as well we can. Are there any guardsmen and women coming from the neighbor islands, you know, coming from Oahu to assist there on Maui? Not yet. Um, but if, if requested, we have more personnel available. We just had uh, a large exercise where, you know, about 2,000 of our troops were in Louisiana, and they've been on their way back uh, over the past week. In fact, that's where some of our helicopters are coming back from. So if they need more personnel, we have more on the neighbor islands, but we also have available here on Oahu that can go over. Well, we uh, understand that, you know, there's a, a news conference that's uh, uh, getting underway uh, and, you know, we'll be getting additional information. Are you hearing anything more about uh, the impacts to the airport or, or uh, assistance to the visitors? Uh, I, I do not know. I know mostly about what the National Guard and how we're assisting. Um, those stats and information is going to have to come from Maui County or uh, Hawaii County. This is one of the, the worst uh, disasters to hit because it's rapidly changing. And, uh, yeah, and it happened overnight and in a tourist area. So, it's like the perfect storm of, of bad things that could happen. It all aligned. And right now, we're with the sun coming up, we're able to see the devastation. All right. Okay. Well, we'll uh, check back uh, for any updates. Thank you so much, though. Aloha. Thank you. All right. Stay safe. And that was Jeff Hickman, director of the Department of Defense Public Affairs, on how the National Guard is supporting the counties during this crisis. And Matthew Wells of uh, the Hawaii Red Cross updates us on the situation in Maui. Some 2,100 people have sought shelter, and that number is expected to change as things develop. We can tell you that the situation was so bad last night, the Red Cross was forced to relocate two shelters yesterday. Those two emergency centers are now located at Maui Preparatory Academy and Maui High. Here's Wells. Thanks to our partnership with county government offices, we are able to open up emergency shelters rather quickly. However, yes, we did have two shelters that opened yesterday that we needed to move. First was at Lahaina Civic Center, and those folks got moved over to Maui Preparatory Academy, and the Kihei Community Center, which moved over to Maui High School. And both of those updated shelters, uh, Preparatory Academy and uh, Maui High, are both open currently. And do we have any feel for how many people are seeking shelter? For right now, I want to say we have about 2,000 people being served total on the island. That is, of course, a living number. So it will go up and down throughout the day. These are check-in points that we have, and we just want to make sure that everybody receives help. And how are your volunteers doing, you know, your staff? Because, boy, this has just been so fast-moving. It's been incredibly fast, but fortunately we have trained staff and volunteers that are at the ready for this. So we have people that are on Maui working right now and stationed there, live there. They're a part of the community that's affected, which always is really powerful to me, just to know that someone is going out, even when their own neighborhood is affected, they'll go out and run towards the danger to make sure that they're helping. We also have staff and volunteer heading in from Kauai, Oahu, Molokai, and Big Island, just to make sure that we can get to those places that need it the most. And what is the greatest need right now? You know, how can how can people across the state help? Right. Well, the, the two greatest gifts are that of money and time. And it really comes down to that point. Uh, we're not set up for taking in physical items like uh, p- people love to hand out food or want to hand us, you know, supplies, kitchen supplies, bedding, things like that. Now, for uh, hygiene and everything like that, unfortunately, we can't take those. It slows down the process. However, if we can get money circulating, donating directly to us at redcross.org slash Hawaii, 
or by volunteering. The greatest gift really is that of time. If you can go out there and be a part of the change that your neighbors need to stay strong and get back on their feet, that is going to mean everything. Redcross.org slash volunteer. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago that Maui was dealing with wildfires, uh, you know, with the with the crazy winds. Uh, and so this is, you know, when I was watching the news last night, uh, you know, af- after those fires were starting to claim homes, I mean, it was just deja vu. Very much so. It's something that we need to prepare for. And it's now on the list of, you know, disasters that are coming up more frequently and things that we need to be ready for. So when you're packing your go bag, when you're making sure that your home is Red Cross ready, it's our usual of, you know, hurricanes, it's our tsunamis, and now it's wildfires as well. Do you have any information? I'm not sure if any visitors are seeking shelter. You know, maybe there were an Air, Airbnbs well, right now, that's that's all a work in progress. We are working with Maui and the county government right there just to make sure that we have uh, everyone taken care of. So, yes, that includes all of the visitors to the island, and we're making sure that those in need have shelter or whatever it is that they may need. Um, we're still getting a full picture of the impact of these fires ourselves. So we're not leaving anyone behind, certainly, and I've... You know, uh, everyone is affected, pure and simple, visitors, residents, everyone. So we're here to help. We were also very distressed to hear that people were forced to jump in the ocean to flee the flames. Are you assisting at all with any of those uh, people that the Coast Guard uh, rescued or plucked from the water? Uh, At this time, I have not I have not um, gotten word of that. But anybody who gets brought to Red Cross in need of assistance receives it. Okay. All right. And, you know, obviously uh, this situation is still, it's in flux. Anything else you think would be important to underscore for listeners out there? Really, it's that this is not something that that we normally see here in the sense of it's not far away. It's not over on, you know, uh, the continent. It is right here in our home. And it is a reminder that we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. And if we have the ability to give, then we need to do that to make sure that our communities and our neighbors stay safe. And I know that the airlines are urging just essential travel only, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I guess if that means, you know, flying in volunteers from the other islands, I mean, that's key. Yes, yes. Fortunately, we have a good relationship with our local airlines and we are able to move our people over there as needed, yes. And are you doing anything with the guard? At this time, I believe that's all still in the work. We're still getting a full picture of that. All right, okay. We're just reaching out to a, a number of you know entities. But thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. And then I guess we'll look for an update later. Thank you. Sounds good. Reach out anytime. That was Matt Wells of the White Red Cross reminding us that we need to be prepared and ready for these types of events. Well said that everyone is affected, residents and visitors. Uh, uh, due to health concerns and processing abilities, the Red Cross cannot accept food or supplies. Uh, if you can and want to help, volunteer time, give money, go to redcross.org slash Hawaii and redcross.org slash volunteer. While Maui continues to work to extinguish this devastating fire and start recovery efforts, HPR reporter Catherine Kluwit-Pactall is in Maui County following up on any impacts to farmers as we mark the one-year anniversary uh, of the Maui County Department of Agriculture. Good morning, Catherine. Are you there, Catherine? Can you hear me? Yes. Ah, there you are. Uh, How is it over there? Good morning from Molokai. How is it over there? It's really windy, but, you know, we're so blessed that we haven't been affected by the fires as, as Maui has. There are so many families here on Molokai that do have families on Maui, um, but we're blessed that the worst we're seeing is the wind right now. And you've been uh, uh, busy uh, uh, talking to a number of people. Uh, what are you hearing back? So Molokai families are hooing up to send over supplies, as we just heard um, from Matt with the Red Cross. Um, 
you know, volunteer supplies are really important right now for those in need on Maui. Molokai families are working um, within our community here to send supplies over um, through officials and through family. At least one Molokai boat captain that I know of is actually doing evacuation boat runs from Maui to help those um, who really need to get out of there as quickly as possible. Um, this morning I spoke briefly with um, Hula resident Janine Rosa, who um, did need to evacuate her home with her family. The winds were blowing down the mountain yesterday, and she knew that if they shifted in the afternoon, they would blow the fire rate towards their house, which, which it did. They watched the flames and the bulldozers from their house, and they were packed up and ready to go um, as the flames just ripped down that, that gulch um, towards Kihei before they evacuated. And she thinks that they're blessed that with their home still being there, but uh, when I talked to her this morning, but they haven't gotten the all clear yet, so uh, it's it's not clear for her personally. Of course, so many families have lost their homes, and she said her family was helping to evacuate about 400 farm animals um, from one of the areas in Kula. Uh, one of the big ranches that wasn't in the fire's path um, has been helping to take larger animals, and she said everyone is just really... Um, helping each other out during this time, which, of course, is one of the strengths of our community. Yeah, and, you know, we've been talking to a number of um, of farmers across the state who grow cacao, and one Maui farmer was still stuck here on Oahu. He was trying to get back. Uh, he had heard that the winds had ripped through their, um, you know, their, their nurseries, uh, and uh, he said that cell phone service was terrible, and he, he couldn't get more information, you know, this morning. So, so many people stressed over this and just worried for um, their workers, worried for their, you know, their friends and families. For sure. And I have been trying to get uh, information specific to farmers. I haven't um, been able to get that information yet. Well, um, I, I know uh, Maui County just, uh, what, celebrated the anniversary of the first year of the Maui Department of Agriculture. So I'm sure they're really busy. They are. Um, so the Department of Agriculture, Maui County's Department of Agriculture, launched a year ago in July 2022, marking the first county in Hawaii to have its own Department of Agriculture. And um, Kali Arce is actually a Molokai homesteader who was selected to lead that department. She has more than 30 years of experience. Um, and it started as a team of two. It started with just her as director and her deputy director, and now they've expanded to a team of seven with two more positions coming on board soon that will create actually two new divisions within the department. As of today, we have our grants division, which is a staff of three, and when the ag park maintenance person is hired, then that'll be the start of the ag operations division. And when the food access coordinator gets on board, that'll be the start of the food security division. So all of the decisions on the personnel was kind of designed by the efforts that were led by the community prior to the development of the department as well as administration, Mayor Victorino's term, that was a result of establishing the department at the ending of the 2022 year in July. And yeah, you know, starting up a new department, lots of challenges. Lots of challenges. She said just learning you know, creating the positions, creating the salaries, um, getting to the point where they could hire more people, really just starting from the beginning, she said, was a real real learning experience for them. The department just wrapped up listening sessions on Maui, Molokai, and Lanai to get public feedback on the department, meet with farmers, identify their needs, and all of that input is being um, included in the development of the department's five-year strategic plan, um, which Archie says will be wrapping up in the next few months um one of uh so they, they've identified three main initiatives or pillars as she calls them the first is economic opportunities in agriculture which is grants and funding through the department and we hope that some of those might be able to help um with with the fire <laughs> we're not sure yet but here's her talking about um the pillars the second pillar that we've seen come out from these these listening sessions and community groups are improved food security for county residents. And the third would be transition to sustainable agriculture. And, you know, having said that, it doesn't mean that we 
only pay attention or give service to organic and regenerative ag. We serve all kinds of agriculture, sea companies, landscaping, and all of the different kinds of production. Of course, Maui County is serious about expanding food production, but being an agriculturalist, hand-in-hand with food comes foliage and flowers, and they support our tourist industry. You know, we have flowers that decorate our food that are edible and such, you know, medicinal. We need turf for our golf courses, for our homes. You know, all of that is some point of agriculture. Yeah, I think the whole effort is really to get ourselves more resilient, right? we got to sustain um, our lively our lives here on the islands. For sure. And, you know, a lot of the things that she mentioned, I didn't even realize, you know, were considered agriculture. But, of course, growing any kind of um, product or, of course, food is, is agriculture that they support. And um, in its first year, the Department of Agriculture did award $300,000 in grants to five different projects. And, of course, I spoke with her before the fires. Um, she talked about one of um their projects for the coming year is expansion of a new farming area, um, the Upper Maui Ag Park, um, which is in development for farmers to be able to lease land in the future. She talked about um, that being an upcoming goal. The Kula Ag Park is already full with 31 lessees. And again, you know, I'm not sure how many of those farms in the Kula area um, have been affected by the fires. But we, we hope that um, agriculture will be able to, to bounce back after this huge hit. And so what else are they working on? Uh, one of the other projects that they're working on for the upcoming year is the uh, collaboration with the Department of Education. They are working with um, convening farmers together to work on the farm service plan that will help get more locally grown food into the schools, meeting a goal of 30% of the plate lunch in schools to be locally grown. So that would be a really exciting uh, goal for them. Okay. All right. Well, we uh, hope uh, that the farmers, uh, our farming community uh, is uh, able to bounce back after this, but thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR's reporter, Catherine Kuit-Pactall, from Moloka'i. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Affordable housing, that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on the line with us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Gosh, so, you know, lots of uh, hand-wringing over the situation over there, people having to flee their homes on Maui. Uh, But, yeah, your story today has to do with, uh, I guess, the growing pains, right? We've got to build new affordable housing, but we've got to get rid of some affordable units as well in the process. Yeah, that's really the story um, that we're looking at now. It's it's an unintended consequence of a city policy and a state policy. There, there are two laws that we're looking at in this story, uh, mainly, though, a city ordinance, um, and it, it's known as Bill 7. It essentially lets developers uh, build more densely and forego certain uh, zoning requirements like parking requirements in exchange for building uh, more units and setting them aside as affordable uh, for uh, 15 years. Now, that sounds great. We get more units and they're capped at some affordability uh, rate for the, for the rent. Uh, but there's a catch. Um, the affordability rate is pretty high And a lot of the places that are being taken out in order to make way for these uh, units and these buildings are pretty inexpensive. Uh, They might not be technically official affordable housing, but they're often housing that's affordable for people. So the the question is, uh, you know, what, what happens? Are we giving up housing that's affordable, actually affordable, 
in exchange for quote unquote affordable housing that the people currently living in those places can't afford? And the answer is yes. That's kind of what that's actually what's happening in some of these places. So there are going to be some losers in this equation. There are losers in the equation, and that's uh, that is the uh, truth. You know, some people would say, "Well, it's not really a an unintended consequence. We could have foreseen this when we adopted these policies. Um, it's more of a trade off." But yes, people are 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 losing out. They stand to lose out. You know, if you look online, you'll see a bunch of properties around Honolulu. They're advertised as Bill 7 conversion uh, opportunities. And again, these might be modest single family homes or maybe a couple of single family homes on a lot in say Mo'ili'ili. And the, the ad says, here you go, you can uh, convert these properties into um, a, a, an apartment building. And where you might've had say 10 bedrooms in these two houses, you could have uh, 20 units and with 25 or 30 rooms. And so it's a lot more rooms. Again, the problem is the cost, it, you know, for a two bedroom apartment under this formula, uh, the rent could be as high as $3,000. And that's just not what people are paying uh, for rent in a lot of these places. And in your article, you also talked about another project there, uh, Kapiolani Village, which is going to be converted from rentals into uh, condos for sale, affordable condos. But sadly, in the urban core, uh, you know, a lot of those folks are going to have to maybe move elsewhere out of town uh, to find uh, cheap housing. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That That's being redeveloped under a different uh, law. It's a, it's a state law called um, HRS 201H. It's a Hawaii Revised Statutes 201H uh, chapter. And yeah, that's one that allows the same kind of idea. Uh, developers can go denser, higher, um, really build more units in the same footprint. And um, in exchange, they set aside a certain number as affordable in this case though they're quite expensive i think they're asking starting at three hundred and seventy thousand dollars for a studio of about 450 square feet so yeah this is the issue it's a trade-off and navigating it is going to be hard and for a lot of people it's going to cause a lot of pain yeah so sadly that's the state of housing here in our hawaii but thank you so much Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read his story on this issue at civilbeat.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll reprise a conversation we had with the Pacific Asian Center for Entrepreneurship and RISE. We'll hear how RISE, or Residence for Innovative Student Entrepreneurs, is ready to launch and how this community can spark new startups. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Today we're pleased to share the pleasant voice of the palila, a native honey creeper that can be found on the Big Island. The University of Hawaii at Hilo professor uh, Patrick Hart has your monument. Palila are the largest of the remaining Hawaiian honeycreepers, being just a bit smaller than the red cardinals you might see in your backyard. Palila have yellow heads and breasts, gray backs, cream-colored bellies, and big thick bills with a hook at the tip. They're part of a group of honeycreeper species known as the finchbills, which specialized on eating hard seeds from a variety of native plants, but are all gone from the main Hawaiian islands except for the palila. Fossil records show that they once ranged from Kauai to the Big Island, but now they only exist in a small patch of forest on the west side of Mauna Kea at elevations between about 7,000 to 10,000 feet. 
Palila are pretty much only found in forests that are dominated by mamane trees, and they're very specialized for extracting and eating the seeds from mamane pods, which look a bit like bean pods. These seeds have toxins in them that make them poisonous to most other animals, but Palila have evolved resistant to these toxins. One of the grad students in our lab at UH Hilo is currently studying the vocalizations of the Palila and has found they have an incredible variety of songs and calls. Here are just a few. Palila song is still thought of as a sign that it will soon rain. The pleasant voice of the Palila has also been mentioned in Hawaiian songs, such as the 1882 mele Heinoa Pii Mauna no Kaleleo Nolani, about Queen Emma's visit to Mauna Kea. Palila were listed as an endangered species in the late 1960s, and there are currently fewer than 1,500 individuals left. Because Palila live high above the zone where disease-carrying mosquitoes might be a threat, Probably the best thing we can do to help them is support efforts to plant more mamane trees to expand their habitat and to ensure these areas are fenced to keep out feral sheep that will forage on mamane seedlings. This is actively being done by the Mauna Kea Forest Restoration Project, as well as other groups. However, as with other honeycreeper species, we're in a race against time to protect them before their numbers fall even further. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society. Since 1939, fostering community values that help to protect Hawaii's native wildlife through educational programs and scientific research. More at hiaudubon.org. This week, we're shining the spotlight on Hawaii's craft chocolate industry. Chocolatier Seneca Klassen started Alonohana Estate Chocolate in 2009. The family-run farm has 5,000 cacao trees on 14 acres of old sugarcane land up on the north shore of Oahu. Cacao beans are picked at peak ripeness, fermented, dried, and transported to town for processing. The Conversations Lillian Song recently visited a Klaassen at his factory located at the old Kiwalo Theater on Queen Street. It houses state-of-the-art equipment as well as vintage chocolate-making machines, some over 100 years old. That's the old screen, and the, where you came in on Queen Street or that side door there would have been like the wing exits. The scuba shop on Cook is in the old lobby, so the theater went this way. And then some of the screen surround is still original there. See all the honu, flying fish, albatross, monk seals, and the ceiling paint is, as far as we know, is original. So this building has had a ton of different lives since the 1960s when it stopped being a theater. It's a cool space to be making chocolate in. Anyway, so as you can feel, this is all the hot production zone. And a day like this in the summertime, it's very warm in here, but that's actually advantageous from a chocolate perspective. There's a lot of machine heat, and I was roasting this morning. About 100 kilos, so about 220 pounds of beans. The next stage after we roast is that we need to winnow the shell away from the nib. And so this big cabinet looking thing is our winnower. And it's still messy because I just finished a cycle. Okay. Um, it's the oldest piece in the factory, so it's over 100 years old now. And this was a winnower that was installed new at a company called Blancsart in Barcelona in 1918. And we know in the 1960s it was sold to this Australian food manufacturing company. They're the biggest sauce producer in Oz. They make ketchup, mayonnaise, all that kind of stuff. And the guy who started that company had a wild hair to start a museum of food production technologies. So he literally just built a building and he installed all this weird stuff in there for all kinds of different foods. And one of them was a small chocolate production line, which never actually made chocolate. It was just a demonstration. It's still got the original electric motor that it had since 1918. So that hasn't changed yet. It's so cool. So this is the, the melanger, big stone grinder. If anybody's ever seen the, the famous Marcel Duchamp chocolate grinder painting, like this is it. This is the iconic kind of image of what these are. Big, huge granite stones with a turning base under them. And so the 
cocoa nibs are being smashed, but also sheared as the base rotates and the wheels stay in place and just turn over it. After this, it progresses into this very modern piece of equipment called a ball mill. And so what's in here is just um, thousands of hardened steel balls, which we call media. And those, that auger flings them around really, really fast at the same time as pumping all the material up and over. So basically everything, think of this as like a, a super aggro mixer with a bunch of ball bearings thrown into it. So anything we put in there is going to be smashed very small, very quickly, but it's very, very likely slash inevitable that the particles that we made small are not well distributed. So that's this whole job of this device. It's a conch. The reason it was called a conch is because um, Rudolf Lindt, who most people will recognize that name, as in Lindt chocolate. In 1879 in Switzerland, he was unsatisfied with the finished texture of the chocolates they were producing. So he had his engineers produce a thing very much like this. This is a really old fashioned type of conch and it's similar to what he made in 1879. The whole purpose was to make the chocolate smoother, to, to lengthen the amount of time that it was subjected to mixing and aeration. And what they do when the chocolate is in flow, as you'll see in a sec when I turn it on, is it splashes. So it moves it up in a wave pattern and then it cascades back on itself. And um, he saw this curved side, it reminded him of a shell. The first shell he thought of was a conch, thus the name. But this has a fun splashing noise, which I kind of love. Next, the liquid chocolate is tempered, poured into molds, and finally packaged. The many steps that go into making Lonohana Estate and Onomea chocolate. Klassen is passionate about educating consumers about the process from bean to bar. Doing any agricultural project in modern Hawaii is, is challenging. Chocolate has some advantages just in the sense that it's a food that people are incredibly emotionally attached to. So you have some leverage <laughs> when you when you talk, start talking with people about chocolate, they're already a little bit gaga. So you kind of like, OK, I have, an, I have a window of opportunity here. But it's producing things the way we produce them and paying labor costs of a developed world agricultural product. You know, you're talking about, a, from my point of view, a properly cost of a chocolate bar. But that's still a huge change from what people are accustomed to. So when people come into our tasting room and love something and then they pick it up and they see that it costs $16 for 65 grams of that chocolate, sometimes they're, sometimes a, a shocking amount of the time, it's not an issue. And they're happy, happy to take it away and enjoy it and evangelize about it and do all that stuff. But there's a certain proportion of people who are like, whoa, are you kidding? Like this is quite bonkers, you know? And so we really have to talk story with them and bring them along the journey of like, what a big change they're actually participating in because localizing this particular food is like a low-key revolutionary thing to do. It's not straightforward and it's not what the system is built to deliver at all. So there's a lot of little things that are super challenging at a relatively small scale. And also the, the chocolate industry full stop has been so industrialized over the course of the last 150 years or so that like doing any part of it at a small scale is inherently inefficient in a certain way. And so you have to be able to overcome that somehow or other. And so finding the ways to do that is a creative challenge and is, is sometimes at certain stages of growth, it's just really, yeah, it's a stressful thing to try and pull off. So we just, you know, we just moved to a new factory last year and that's a big capital expense to build out such a thing, even though our factory is still small in the global sense. But for us, it's a huge outlay of cash and a huge risk to go do stuff like that. And we need to go do more farming. We need to expand that. So it's, not us alone, but there's a whole group of people in Hawaii right now trying to really build a little industry around cacao and chocolate that I think has a lot of potential to benefit Hawaii in the long run and actually bring something really positive to the islands. And as an agriculturally based product, which is fantastic and something we can uniquely do well here in Hawaii, in my opinion. But anytime you're trying to start an industry from scratch, especially an ag industry in modern day Hawaii, that's a big challenge. And so understanding for you, the Lonohana Estate up on the North Shore, you took over some old sugar uh, acreage up there. You remediated the soil. You got it healthy going again so that you can actually be growing, was it how many, 4,000 trees? Yeah, it's it's almost 5,000 trees, I guess, at this point on that one at Adopuila 9, which is our original farm site. 
that's one of the coolest things to me about cacao is the capacity it has to repurpose degraded land. And we have an awful lot of that in Hawaii after the plantation era. And in the case of where we particularly are on Opaila Ridge, right above Haleiwa Town on the North Shore, it's really cool because back in the kingdom, if you use your imagination and cast yourself back into that time, that was all dry lowland forest. Like those weren't open grasslands back then, yeah? And so in a sense, the use of agroforestry, regenerative agroforestry practices in a space like that, not only is an act of malama aina for that place, but it also kind of reverts it to a type of landscape that it would once have been on its own naturally. There's cacao trees in there now and mahogany trees and some things that never would have been there before, but the overall environment that we now work in on that 14 acres of Oahu is actually like cast back in time. There's pueo living in there and there's all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. And so um, it's pretty inspiring place to be. And the fact that we can make something commercially productive and have that kind of impact on the landscape is really cool. Do you guys do trade shows? I mean, right now, is, is it trending up for Hawaii chocolate? I think so. Yeah. In terms, if you look at the profile and like awards won and all this kind of stuff, I think people are really starting to recognize us as an origin producer that is super high quality, has a really distinguishable, identifiable kind of profile of flavor and quality. And I think that's, yeah, it's starting to happen for sure. Not just regionally, but globally, you know, Hawaii Cacao is getting awards at the Paris Salon, Salon de Chocolat. There's a raw materials award every other year. Hawaii beans have won lots of awards at those in recent past. And the finished products are doing really well too, not just Monahana and Onomea stuff, but our friends and colleagues from around the islands. So I think, yeah, I think people are paying attention to what we're doing and starting to realize it. I think in the long, long run, like the, the dream is really to create an industry that has so much allure that it's it's another reason why people want to be in Hawaii, you know, that we really attract people to come specifically see cacao and chocolate destinations when they're here in the islands. And that's a thing that they come for, just like you go for the wine in the wine country, you know. We're absolutely up for that, and we're trying to be part of making our own little stuff as good as it possibly can be so that we're serving that broader goal. Okay, so earliest memory of chocolate. Man, somebody just asked me this recently. It's a chocolate orange at Christmas time. I don't know if you ever got those, but I was raised by kind of like hippie wolf people and I was not allowed to have sweets or sugar or anything. So whenever I got them, which is usually around my grandmother, I was like a fiend. So she gave me this Drosti, it's like a Dutch company and it's a thing shaped like an orange. It's segmented and you like, you smack it and it's boiled right and it falls apart into segments like as if it were an orange and it's orange flavored dark chocolate. That's the first thing I remember eating and thinking like, oh, what is this stuff? It's amazing, you know? And that's a kind of a distinct memory. So we make what's called an orange and vanilla bar at Lonohana. The reason that that bar exists is because about four or five years ago, I went to get me one of those dusty oranges because I was like, ah, oh, nostalgic vibes. I want to check in with one of those. And I ate it and it was terrible. And I don't think it was terrible just that like my nostalgic memory compared with what it really is, isn't as good. I think it is. I think a lot of chocolate products, candy products even, have become much less good since we were young. Um, Mounds is another one that I used to love that candy bar. Um, it is terrible now. And it's terrible because the coating, that's not even really chocolate, but the coating compound that goes around the coconut is just trash now. It's all fat and sugar. There's very little, there's, you know. So if you look at the prices of some of those things and you realize how little they've gone up, then you can just use your imagination. Like, well, what has had to change about the product itself for the price to stay so consistent over 30 years, right? Um, it's lower quality inputs and more more junk and less good stuff and yeah more processing and so I've had that same experience with the chocolate orange, um, so I set out to repair it by making a, a bar <laughs> for us that I that would taste like what I remembered the experience I remembered so we now make a chocolate bar called the orange and vanilla bar, yeah, yeah it's it's a yeah it's even a wholesale product it's part of our wholesale line so it's uh, it's a really nice seventy percent estate chocolate with sweet orange essential oil and yeah it's yummy when we think about cacao chocolate as an industry how close are we to it i think we're probably like a generation away um and that sounds maybe like pessimistic or depressing but it's actually really good 
<laughs> because when you look at an ag-based industry, like especially something that um, has such a long development curve, like an orchard-based thing or a vineyard-based thing, you're talking about development cycles, um, even in selecting a tree that are six to 10 years long. And so, you know, I fully expect to be a very old man by the time where we have a really refined orchard space, for instance. And that's just how long it takes to do that kind of work in a really refined way that really has legs and produces incredibly high quality results. So for us to create a world-class, you know, destination-worthy industry around cacao and chocolate here in Hawaii is going to take time. But I think that the people who are involved in various aspects of it and the players who are committed to it and the possibilities that are starting to open up are so compelling that it's going to be successful. But um, yeah, I think, you know, maybe when my daughter is my age, we'll have a <laughs> we'll have a chocolate industry in Hawaii that that's globally recognized and that Hawaii people, like I said earlier, I hope will be really proud of and will be stoked to share with the rest of the world. And that was cacao farmer, chocolate maker, and founder of Lonohana Estate Chocolate, Seneca Klassen with HPR's Lillian Song. The locally grown and produced chocolate is available at its retail store and tasting bar in Salt Kaka'ako and also online. Factory tours are open to the public Friday and Saturday. We've got to go now, but up tomorrow, we hear about innovation in the chocolate biz. We're highlighting a Maui chocolate company whose proceeds go to charity. Leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something? Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation Podcast on our website or on places like Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Oh,